Good morning, everyone. As we turn to hear from God's word this morning, we seek to receive it with reverence and humility. The summons to the word found in your bulletin helps us to do just that. Let's read it together. Consider carefully how you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. This morning's first scripture reading is taken from Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23. In the Blue Pew Bible, it can be found on page 1004. Again, the text is Galatians 5, verses 22 through 23, and it's found on page 1004. It reads, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Our second scripture reading is from Luke chapter 6, verse 38. In the Pew Bibles, it can be found on page 886. Again, the text is Luke chapter 6, verse 38, found on page 886. It says, Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap, for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Thank you, Jeff. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, just as we have uh, been praying, we ask that you would speak to us, that you would take your word and you would write it upon our hearts. Father, we ask that uh, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Father, I pray that you would give comfort to those who are afflicted. Father, would you um, equip those who are in need of, of wisdom, and Father, would you empower those who are weak? Father, would you uh, purify those who are unclean? Would you offer mercy to those who have been wayward? Father, would you uh, surprise those who, are, those who are discouraged with joy? So, Father, please send your spirit. Father, all of the words in the world won't make a difference apart from you giving us the eyes to see the ears to hear, the hearts to perceive, and to receive and live according to the goodness, the truth, the beauty that is found in your word. And we pray that you would take us and change us from the inside out, that we would be more like Jesus. Father, please help us to leave encouraged, to leave equipped, to leave with priorities that are truly from you, Oh, Father, fill our hearts with hope. May they soar with the hope that is found in your mighty deeds. May we leave with a wisdom that is not of this world, a wisdom that sees the, the genius, the, the beauty, the, uh, the, the way that your law leads to life, true life. Father, walk with us, we pray, as we walk through your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as most of you probably know, the Supreme Court uh, has been in the news a lot lately um, for uh, the reversal of Roe v. Wade, uh, for various other decisions that have proven quite controversial, and uh, the, um, the, the, just in the news, there's just the, all this conversation about various justices and the nature of the Supreme Court and its future, 
and uh, a lot of a lot of vitriolic, a lot of a lot of harsh words, a lot of strong words on both sides. And in the midst of all of that, something stuck out. Uh, there was a video that I came across that really stood out to me. And Ron, if you can cue that up in just a second here, uh, this is a this is Justice Sotomayor, and she is Sonia Sotomayor. She is speaking at the American Constitution Society which is a society, and I'm just describing this, this is not pejorative or affirming, I'm just saying this, it's a society that's overwhelmingly progressive. Sotomayor herself is, is uh, her, her, her opinions have been more progressive, and that's where she lies uh, in her legal or judicial views. And uh, she had, she was speaking, and I don't know what the context was, but she was speaking in the context of, of what she was saying, she spoke about Justice Clarence Thomas. Uh, whose views are very different, as she'll, as she'll mention here. I'll go ahead and, Ron, go ahead and play that if you would. With him more than with any other justice. And yet, Justice Thomas is the one justice in the building that literally knows every employee's name. He's the first one who will go up to someone when you're walking with him and say, is your son okay? How's your daughter doing in college? He's the first one that when my stepfather died, sent me flowers in Florida. He is a man who keeps, cares deeply about the court as an institution, about the people who work there, but about people. That's good, thank you. Winston, go ahead and cut that there. So here, this is just a rare, uh, you know, a rare uh, excerpt amidst of all of the vitriol where you see someone who disagrees sharply commend the humanity of another person. And I, I in fact, later as she goes on to say, she said, uh, for all of our differences, we share a common understanding about people and kindness towards them. That's what I want to talk about just a little bit this morning, this idea of kindness. Now, why do I share this? Is it to defend Clarence Thomas? Is it to promote Justice Sotomayor? No, it's, it's, not, about, it's not a political statement. Rather, I want to highlight and commend both justices as persons whose actions are marked by kindness. I don't know about you, but I am very quick to just vilify people to see them through one lens, through one perspective, to fix and hone in on something that I don't like about them and it colors everything else about them. And what she says there, what I thought was just so beautiful, how she says, you know, I kind of cut out at first there, but she says, I completely disagree with almost everything he says in terms of his judicial opinions. And yet I know him as a human being. He's the one who knows everyone in the building, who remembers their stories, who asks and follows up and cares. He really cares. Now let me share another story about Justice Thomas as well. It's not so much a story, but uh, um, a context or or a, a, a book that I read a while ago. Harvard Law Professor Randall Kennedy wrote a book published in 2008 called Sellout. 
The subtitle is The Politics of Racial Betrayal. In the book, he discusses what you might imagine. What does it mean to be a sellout, especially as in terms of race? And he devotes an entire chapter to the question, is Clarence Thomas a sellout? He closely evaluates Justice Thomas's legal opinions. The guy is brilliant. I mean, again, he's a Harvard Law professor. He examines all the various legal opinions and disagrees very strongly on almost every single opinion that, that Justice Thomas has. And then he concludes, listen to this, for all of Thomas's deficiencies as a justice, he is a jurist with his own ideas. They are ideas with which I often disagree, but they are his ideas. Opponents of the justice do their side no favor by minimizing his capacities and his achievements. He is a force to be reckoned with. The all too common practice of simply calling him a sellout is a debilitating shortcut that permits opponents to avoid doing the work needed to educate and persuade audiences that are still movable regarding their assessments of the justice. See, what I, see how nuanced that is? I disagree with his opinions, and yet he's defending. Thomas, from those who would call him a sellout. See, this, you, you see what's important about it is you can, you can disagree with someone and still truly act kindly toward them. Again, why do I mention these examples of kindness? Because of the context in which they take place. It's the public, political sphere. Listen, gang, we live in a very interesting time. I mean, it's, I just, the time that we live in, it's just, you just wonder what's going to happen next, right? It's just amazing. You can't make this stuff up. It's just amazing, the ups and downs and all the various intricacies of all that's going on. And, and what's, I think, one of the most intriguing things about our time is that we live in a time that on the one hand is marked by an incredible uh, per, uh, permissiveness, uh, we love to let other people simply live the way they live. And at the same time, for certain persons, we will absolutely destroy them. I mean, you go on Twitter, you go on social media, whatever, and you can just see how people are willing to simply um, um, just annihilate someone else and just, just completely crucify their character. How do you hold these things together? On the one hand, this, this sort of you know, permissive tolerance, do whatever you want to, with this sharp, just deadly, uh, vicious attacks. Is that it's interesting? How, how, how do you make sense of these two things? Well, um, political and social scientist Charles Murray was writing about what he calls the new, today's new upper class. I just, just this is so, so interesting to me because it kind of, it, it talks about this idea of of how you reconcile these realities. He says, in today's new upper class, the code by which they live is a set of mushy injunctions to be nice. Call it the code of ecumenical niceness. Children are supposed to share their toys, not hit one another, take turns to be nice. And by and large, the children of the new upper class grow up to be nice. But they are also taught that they should respect everyone else's way of doing things. 
And here's where things get, get interesting. Regardless of gender, race, sexual preference, cultural practices, or national origin, which leads to the crucial flaw in ecumenical niceness. The new upper class still does a good job of practicing some of the virtues, but it no longer preaches them. It only preaches non-judgmentalism instead. The members of the new upper class are industrious to the point of obsession. That is, they're hardworking. But they are, but listen, but there are no derogatory labels for adults who are not industrious. See the non-judgmentalism? The young women of the new upper class hardly ever have children out of wedlock. But it is absolutely impermissible to use a derogatory label for non-marital births. Do you, you see where I'm going with this? So just speaking of a class of persons who preach what? Non-judgmentalism. They live a certain way. They're industrious. They work hard. Are they going to have a kid out of wedlock? No way. But will they, will they preach otherwise? Will they, will they actually say, will they critique anything? And the question is, is that, why? Why is that? Why is there this, this tolerance? Why is there this, this niceness? Why is there this sense that, hey, you go ahead and do you? He continues here. He says, he says you will probably raise a few eyebrows even if you use a derogatory label for criminals. And then he says, when you get down to it, it is not, it is not acceptable in the new upper class to use derogatory labels for anyone with three exceptions. People with differing political views, right? You can throw them under the bus, right? What's the second? What's the second? Different political views, different, well, he says fundamentalist Christians, and the third, rural working class whites. Isn't that interesting? So there's this huge difference between what Murray is here calling niceness and what the Bible calls kindness. Okay, I want to like try to distinguish these. On the one hand, is this niceness that's just kind of polite. Listen, this niceness is a permissive apathy towards others. I don't care. You do you. Right? Hey, you, you that. You do you. Hey, you just be yourself. You whatever you feel is right. I'm happy for you. It is this niceness. Listen to this, gang. It is a permissive apathy. Whatever you want, that's great. And that is not what the Bible calls kindness. Kindness, listen to this, is a caring generosity towards others. A caring, concerned, large-hearted, open-handed attitude toward others, a disposition. See, niceness is, I don't care, you do you. Kindness or generosity says, I do care. I am so for you. I'm for you. And that, that, that sense of being for you is, 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 a, is a in, involving. It's, it's a sense that I somehow have responsibility for your welfare. There's Justice Thomas going around the building talking to the janitor. How's your son doing? How are things going? You lost your mom. I'm going to send you flowers while you're in Florida. There's this sense of, of involvement or participation. I do care, and I'm so for you. 
In fact, the Greek word translated kindness in Galatians uh, 5 that Jeff read for us on Christates is, you could probably better translate it by the word benevolence. Benevolence, literally benevolent, to want what the good, to want what is best. Kindness is wanting what is best for somebody else. Does that make sense? And that's a really, that, that actually complicates things, doesn't it? As a spouse, what's it like to want what's best for your husband or wife? What's it like as a parent to want what's best for your kids? Last week, I sent out that email to, to, to uh, just to the interested parents about parenting. And one of the things I mentioned was the idea of making the evening meal central. Make it sacred. And the evening meals are this little microcosm of life. Right? If I said the best things in life, what I said the best things in life are what? Acquired tastes. That's true. It's so true. And it happens literally at the dinner table where your children over years learn, they have to learn, most of them, good food. <laughs> they don't naturally go, oh yeah, I mean, there are a few things that they just naturally like, but often you have to train them. To, for them to hear, you, you set before them something that Sarah will make this incredible gourmet meal. And you set it before them. It is what is best. Right? And they may not like it. In fact, we may have to force them to eat it. But in time, when they kind of be high schoolers, college students, it's wonderful. They have this palate that's amazing. And they can actually taste and enjoy a full spectrum of food. Do you see that? So we wanted what's best for them, and it was very counterintuitive to them, and it, made it makes for difficult dinner, you know, dinner times, etc. But it's so worth it. Versus niceness, what does the nice parent do? Johnny, what do you want to eat? What do you tell me? We're having this for dinner, but you just, hey, you, you go ahead and you make whatever it is, whatever two kinds of food that you eat, I'll give it to you. Okay? Now listen, I'm illustrating that. I don't... I don't, Jesus doesn't care what kind of food your kids eat, okay? It's an illustration. If you want to give your kids whatever you want to give them at night, that's just totally fair. But it's, my point is that it can be a training ground, a little microcosmos for life. Because life, the best things in life are what? Acquired tastes. They're tastes that you develop as, you, as your palate matures. You think, wow, that is really good. Okay, does that make sense? And that's exactly what obedience is. Obedience, love, that the fruit of the Spirit are these things that we acquire. We come to see them as beautiful. So again, niceness is a permissive apathy towards others. I don't, I don't care. And it's kind of this wonderful thing. I don't care. Right? I don't care. And at the end of the day, that's why we feel that so many people actually don't care about us. Because then, okay, you do, hey, you do you. And kindness is so different. It is a caring generosity towards others. It says, I do care. I am so for you. Now, let me ask a question. What is the opposite of generosity? What is the opposite of generosity? What is the opposite of kindness? What is the opposite of benevolence? Well, we can probably answer that a couple different ways. But we're tempted to think... And we'd be half right to say that the opposite of, of kindness might be something like hostility. 
you know, being mean to someone, being harmful, hurtful, right? Clarence Thomas, instead of being kind to someone, talking to them, you know, the walker walks along, puts his foot out, and they fall. Right? That would be the opposite. But there's truth to that. It's half true. But actually, you know what the real opposite of, gener- of, of kindness is? What the real opposite of generosity is? Niceness. Apathy. See, when you don't like someone, at least you kind of give them the attention of like, I'm not, I don't like you. <laughs> right? You, you go after them. You, 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 they're, you're, you're, they are on your mind. The opposite of kindness is exactly what Americans specialize in today. Apathy. I can remember a conversation I had when I was living in the UK and uh, um, we were talking about crime in America and just how much, uh, how many homicides we have and how disproportionate it is in America than, than other countries. And, uh, and I was listening to the conversation as several of these British folks were talking and and they started joking. They, they, they said, well, we would like to say that we're better, in a sense, more civil people. But in, in England, we don't kill you. We just pretend like you don't exist. Right? And so the question is this. It's a question that I want to take a little bit of time to address. The question is this. Most of you know Genesis 4. You know the story of Cain and Abel. How Cain and Abel both offer gifts to the Lord, and uh, God accept, accepts Abel's gift, but rejects Cain's gift. And Cain becomes angry, and he brings, he takes Abel out into the field and, and strikes him down and kills him. And later, God comes to Cain, and he, he says, where is your brother? You know, why does, of course, God knows where his brother is. God knows what's happening. But what's, what's he doing? He's giving Cain the opportunity to actually own something. Where's your brother? And what, is his, what, what does Cain say in response? It is a question that is at the heart of us as a church. It's a heart, at the heart of us as a neighborhood, as a nation. Am I my brother's keeper? Do I have a responsibility to other people in this room? Do I owe them a sense of kindness, of concern? Am I supposed to live my life in a way that says, I am for you? I do care. See, it's so easy to think, oh, I'm not angry at anybody here, I'm nice. I show up at church on Sunday and I'm nice. I'm polite. And the truth is, we're relatively apathetic. We really don't care. And the God of Scripture is this God who, so just very briefly, I just want to just take us, go to the review. I mentioned Genesis 4. I want to talk about Genesis 1 and 2, just very briefly here. Genesis 1 and 2 speak of God, listen to this, in two ways. Genesis 1 and 2 speak of God as one who is strong and one who is sharing. In Genesis 1, God is, he is truly God. 
in the sense that he has all power and authority is strong. If you look at, if you look at your pew Bible, it's wonderful. I love how this is set out in the pew Bible. Again, this is simply page one of your pew Bible, Genesis 1. And, and you see here, it's sort of this semi-exalted uh, prose here where you have each verse that says, and God said, and God said. See how it sticks out. And God said, Verse 3, verse 6, verse 9, verse 14, verse 20, verse 24. And God said, and all that has to happen is God speaking, and what happens? And it was so. That's the rhythm of Genesis 1. It's so beautiful. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate the water from water. From water. And then in verse, uh, verse um, uh, 7, and it was so. Verse 9, and God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let it let dry ground appear, and it was so. You have this tremendous sense that by divine fiat, through his word, God is bringing order. He's bringing life. He's bringing beauty. He's bringing goodness. And where is it all going? Where is it all going? It's such a simple idea, but all this power, all of this strength is, 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 uh, is uh, being exercised for one reason. He's creating a nursery. It's all about the, the, the little guy he's going to make. He's going to come along. All that strength, it's all about sharing. It's all about giving. And what's so amazing, this is a conversation I had with Jim recently. I've had this with my dad. I've had this with a number of different people who really love uh, the stars. And I asked him, why do you think he just made so many? I and mean, they, just, they just don't stop, Right? Why do you think he gave us so, I mean, this earth that is just so rich, so abundant? I mean, it's just overkill. The riches that we have. Genesis 1 loves to describe of the, the fruit, the trees, of the, all, all the, the, the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, this sense of abundance. You look in, chapter, look in verse uh, uh, 28. It says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Verse 29, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. Okay, is that enough? Right? I mean, it's just, it's just, I mean, just lavish sense of generosity, of concern, of care. And it's that generosity, that, that strength that is all about sharing, that is at the heart of who God is. That's where we began this morning in Psalm 145, that he has compassion and concern for all that he has made. Listen to this, gang. God is for his world. And what I want you to see here in Genesis 1 is God's care for us. But listen to this. We're almost finished. Look at verse 27. So God created mankind. I mean, let me start with verse 26. Then he said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Now listen. What does it mean here to be made in God's image, in his likeness? It's quite simply that we are to imitate him in that idea of being a strong sharer. 
Genesis 1 here is all about God using authority, using power for the good of his creation, for the good of his people. And we are called to do the exact same. That's what it means to be made in God's image, is to take the influence, the, the resources that you have at your disposal, and to use them for the good of his world. Isn't that very simple? Guys, guys, it's just simply this. God is for his world, and he created us when uh, he created us to be for one another, to be for his world. And listen to this. We are most human. We are, we, we are at our most um, alive. We are doing what we were made to do most when we are most for one another. Let me close just with this contrast. So I just think it's a very simple one, but very effective one. Um, Sarah and I, um, well, I'm, I'm going to include Sarah in this. I, I know nothing about cars. I mean, like zero. I mean, I know where the gas, you know, you put the gas in, and that's about it. And so whenever we have any sort of maintenance issues or even just preventative maintenance, we take it to the dealership. And I've always had mixed, mixed, uh, mixed thoughts about that because it just seems when you take when you take it to the dealership you just never really well it's just more expensive right you did and and, uh, and what's been really challenging since we moved here we won't tell you which dealership we go to or whatever but we go to this one where after a while i just said you know i just feel like we go in and they milk us for everything it's like this is wrong 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 and and you and i leave you know five six eight hundred dollars later i think geez are you kidding me like, this is killing us and I just, after walking out of the place, I just don't, I didn't trust them. I didn't think that they were looking out for me. It's like, hey, we're faithful. Like, we're, gonna, we're not going anywhere. We're, you know, whatever. And it's just like, it's just, I mean, I mean, what, what, finally, the, finally the, what, sort of the straw that broke the camel's back was when I went in there and they have these, like, things on the side where like, they come in and they are able to analyze your, um, what do you call that? The, your alignment, right? And so we, okay, well, I guess they're aligned. We better align them because I don't want to. Where the tires or whatever. So we pay the 90, 100 bucks, $120, or whatever it is, to, to align the tires. And I'm like, okay, so we're good, right? Like, like this should last how long? Oh, yeah, this will last a really long time. The next time we go in there, guess what? Our tires weren't aligned. And I said, wait a minute, we just, oh, no, well, they're not, I don't know what's going on. And so it's like, I don't, it's like, I don't believe you anymore. I just don't believe you. And you felt so vulnerable, so taken advantage of, so like, what's, these, these people are not for me whatsoever. And I can remember talking to my, my, my older brother about this, and he said, you know, it's so funny because we, our dealership, same, same brand of car, and where he lives in Montana, he said our dealership is like the number two or three dealership in the nation. And he's like, I go in there all the time. I take my truck in there. I go in there, and the guy's like, yeah, here's the things that's, here are the issues that are of your car. Don't worry about that for now. Don't do this. We can, we can do this quick fix. That'll be good enough. And you get the sense the guy really what? He really cares about you. He really is for you. He's on your team. He's not saying they're trying to milk you for all your worth, but it's this sense of, hey, I ha- I'm taking you in a place of vulnerability, and I'm here to care for you. Let me close with this, guys, because benevolence, kindness, is most powerful when the recipient is vulnerable or, listen to this, when they have wronged us. Can you think of people in your life who have wronged you? And what would it be like this week to sit down 
and take some time to pray and say, God, show me some really concrete ways that I can be kind, that I can show this person that I am for them. And here's the thing, let me finish with this. You got this, this is important. You have to do this for the sake of the Lord, to serve Him. Do you know why? Because they may not understand your kindness. They may miss it completely. They may misunderstand and misread it as you hurting them, not liking them, whatever. You do it for the sake of the Lord. Of course you would love for them to see and know and acknowledge and understand and really approach. Oh, wow, that's an act of kindness. Thank you so much. And this, this complicates things. This, what does this mean, right? And they, and they receive it. But they may not. And that's what leads us right to this table. This was a table in which Jesus was so for us, for a world that was absolutely 100% against him. A world that could not, for the life of them, for the life of us, recognize kindness. God was giving us his son, was not sparing his own son, and we just completely missed it. That's love. That is the strong one sharing his son for us. Let's pray.